Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings, listeners, from your marvellously genial host, John Derbyshire, here to bring you a glance at the week's news stories with a heavy bias towards scepticism, cynicism, pessimism and disgust. Tuesday this week was July 12th. Foremost in my mind, that was my father's birthday. Dad, if he were still among us, would be 123 years old. We Derbyshire men married late. My son, when he was in middle school, used to lament that his classmates had grandfathers who'd fought in Vietnam. But, quote, my grandfather fought in World War One. End quote. I had to remind him that only one of his grandfathers had done so. The other one fought in the Korean War. On the other side. That's just personal, though. Less so is that July 12th is a great day for the Loyalists of Northern Ireland, of Ulster. Loyalists there means the portion of Ulster's population loyal to the British Crown, as opposed to the Irish Republic. Back when religious affiliation was the dominant issue, it meant Protestants. Nowadays it's mostly just an ethnic nationalist difference. July 12th commemorates the Battle of the Boyne, fought in 1690 between King William III of England and ex-King James II, whom William and England's Parliament had deposed, but who was trying to make a comeback. As rejected national leaders sometimes will. More on that later. To us science geeks, July 12th this year was special for reasons utterly unconnected to either the Derbyshire genealogy or British history. Let me open with that. Yes, Tuesday, July 12th, was the day that NASA released the first pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope, the JWT, which was launched on Christmas Day last year. As I noted at the time, quote from Radio Derb, the day before the launch, quote, In the manner of telescopes at least, we are still the can-do nation. At any rate, we're willing to try to attempt big, bold, expensive projects that have no other purpose than to enlarge our understanding of creation. End quote. That Christmas Day launch was successful. The JWT has been parked in orbit half a million miles from the Earth's surface. Its many complex systems have been deployed and tested, and it is now working at what it was made for. And on Tuesday, we got the first pictures. I watched the NASA one-hour live stream, which is now, of course, on YouTube. Uh, just go to YouTube and key in NASA first images. If you do so, you'll have company. Friday morning, just three days after the live stream, the YouTube version had over two and a half million views. If you are not a science geek, it's hard to explain the excitement of an event like this. Old science fiction fans talk about the sense of wonder. If you understand that phrase, you probably got the sense of wonder early in life from reading sci-fi and pop science articles. If you don't understand it, I can't transmit it to you. It's to do with the inconceivably vast stretches of space and time that we dwell in. 
with the things that dwell with us in those stretches and how they are born and die and what it all means for our own existence. I got the bug around age seven or eight from reading my Uncle Fred's collection of sci-fi and pop science books. A few years later, I marvelled at the pictures from our first interplanetary probes. I shared the general astonishment, I mean general among science geeks, uh, the general astonishment when Mariner 4 sent back the first good images of the surface of Mars. They showed craters. We'd been expecting canals. My sense of wonder even overrides my scepticism of big government projects. The Apollo program, of which the best written account is still the book by Mr. and Mrs. Charles Murray, the Apollo program stirred me to my depths. Forty years later, in fact, I wrote that, quote, Apollo was an extravagance, a folly. But what a glorious, soul-stirring folly. End quote. I'm afraid I still feel that way. If our national government is to spend scads of our money on projects, better those projects should do something to enlarge our understandings and awe our imaginations. Hey, it beats building pyramids. Tuesday's live stream hit all the right buttons. They showed us five of those first images. Dancing galaxies, stars being born and dying, a planet orbiting a distant star, and a deep field picture. It was the deep field picture that got the most publicity. In astronomical jargon, a deep field picture captures a tiny patch of sky on a very long exposure, so that extremely faint objects have time to register on the photographic plate. Tuesday's deep field picture showed objects far, far away, objects we could not have seen before JWT. Because light takes its time travelling to us, plodding along at 67 million miles an hour, far, far away is a synonym for long, long ago. These images show the state of affairs when the universe was very young, which in this context means less than a billion years old. Amazing. The presentation of these marvels was, of course, all warped to conform to our cultural revolution. The main presenter was an astronomer named Michelle Thaler. A big majority of her guests were female. Now look, I have no doubt that some astronomers are women. I'm sure they are capable and hard-working astronomers. However, from some slight acquaintance with the higher levels of scientific research and a fair knowledge of the human sciences, I very seriously doubt that the proportion of astronomers who are female is anything remotely like the proportion presented to us on the NASA livestream Tuesday. I can't find statistics for any date later than 2017, when women earned 33% of astronomy bachelor's degrees and 40% of astronomy doctorates. That, remember, is from an academic environment where administrators are under terrific political pressure to push women into the hard sciences. Because... Equity. 
Even so, we're looking at minorities there. I doubt the numbers have moved much in five years. So, why was the NASA livestream such a girls' show? My own cynicism suggests that they originally aimed for perfect equity, with lots of black astronomers as well as women. Black astronomers are kind of thin on the ground, though. Sure, I know about Neil deGrasse Tyson, but one swallow doesn't make a summer. Unable to come up with any blacks, NASA just decided to go all out with the women as the second best. Whatever. This is propaganda overkill. It's a regular feature of our cultural revolution. They don't just want to tell you that there are capable women working in hard science fields like astronomy, which of course is true. They want to bang you over the head with it until you're down on the floor begging for them to stop. I got a similar vibe from this week's news stories about Monticello. Monticello is, of course, the estate of Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville, Virginia, preserved for nearly 200 years now as a monument to the author of the Declaration of Independence. Monticello is a national historic landmark and also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's run by a private non-profit named the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Now that non-profit has gone woke, just like well-nigh every non-profit. Every business corporation, every school and college, most of the media and social media, all government departments, and even, heaven help us, the armed forces. If you go to visit Monticello in hopes of gaining some understanding of how our nation came to be, brace yourself for a deep immersion seminar in critical race theory. Thomas Jefferson was, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation wants you to know, a simply terrible person. And, like NASA pushing all those gals on you, they don't just mention Jefferson's defects in passing, they bang you over the head with them until you're dizzy. One visitor to Monticello told the New York Post that, quote, the whole thing has the feel of propaganda and manipulation. People on my tour seemed sad and demoralised. End quote. Yes, that's how the Red Guards want us, sad and demoralised. Makes us easier to control, you see. A few months ago in my diary I wrote something about historical guilt. What I wrote seems apt to this topic. I am therefore going to take the liberty of just reading it to you, and slightly edited down. Here you go. Long quote. East Asians seem not to bother much with collective guilt. I know plenty of overseas Chinese who are perfectly aware of the horrors of communism, but I have never heard any of them express remorse over, for example, the Dzungar genocide back in the 1750s. Likewise with the Japanese. Their nation perpetrated some gross atrocities within living memory, but Japanese people seem not to suffer anguished guilt about it. Their government has issued formal apologies when there has been some diplomatic or commercial advantage to be gained by doing so, but you have to wonder if there was any sincerity behind the words. If there was, wouldn't the apologist in the proper Japanese tradition 
wouldn't he have closed the proceedings by committing public seppuku? And then there are the Mongolians. You can make a case that, with due allowance for available population numbers and low levels of killing technology, the worst mass murderer of all time was 13th century Mongolian warlord Genghis Khan. How do the free Mongolians of today feel about him? They love him! Mongolia's main international airport is named after him. So is the country's premier university. So is the capital city's main tourist hotel. I must say, when watching a snivelling worm like Antony Blinken writhe and rend his garments over our nation's faults and misdeeds, I must say I find myself preferring the more robust East Asian attitude. They're like, yeah, we did that. They would probably have done it to us if they could, though. In any case, we're not doing it any more. So what's the point of banging on about it? Back in the day, when some schoolyard nuisance accused yourself or your family members of some fault or defect, and you couldn't be bothered with a detailed rebuttal, you could just shut down the topic by saying, Eh, so's your old man. Behind the smooth diplomacies of those Japanese apologies, or the shrugs of Chinese friends when I mention the wanton killing of missionary wives and children in the Boxer Rebellion. Behind all that, I'm pretty sure I can detect some component of... So's your old man. I'm not a totalitarian, and I don't want anything memory-hauled. I would, though, stand up and cheer if... The next time one of those UN pests or Chi-Com flunkies accused the USA of historical misdeeds, I would stand up and cheer if some appropriate official representative of this republic would respond publicly and loud with So's your old man. End long quote. More news about the shortfall in military recruiting. The New York Times ran a 1,600-word piece about it on Thursday. With due allowance for the fact that this is regime media, the piece wasn't bad. Sample, quote, The army is the largest of the armed forces, and the recruiting shortfall is hitting it the hardest. As of late June, it had recruited only about 40% of the roughly 57,000 new soldiers it wants to put in boots by September 30th, the end of the fiscal year. End quote. When I first started noticing these stories a few weeks ago, my gut reaction was, what a surprise. Young Americans don't want to go fight wars that our politicians don't really intend to win. They don't want to get their arms and legs blown off in 20-year wars that end in a humiliating withdrawal. And they don't want to be bossed around by weird men wearing women's dresses. That was my gut reaction. After reading the New York Times piece, I'll allow that there is more to it than that. The Covid pandemic shut recruiters out from a lot of places they cultivate in normal times. County fairs, street festivals and especially high schools. There's a surfeit of civilian jobs too, making it harder for the military to compete. Also the demographic factor. There are fewer and fewer young people around every year. And then, some more uncomfortable facts. 
Another quote from the Times. In recent years, the Pentagon has found that about 76% of adults aged 17 to 24 are either too obese to qualify or have other medical issues or criminal histories that would make them ineligible to serve without a waiver. End quote. To push back against the negatives, the military is offering enlistment bonuses as high as $50,000, according to the Times. 50000 I find that hard to believe. My son shook his head sadly when I raised the issue of those enlistment bonuses with him. He never got an enlistment bonus. He joined the army in 2013 right out of high school with no enlistment bonus on offer. He didn't need one. He was sufficiently motivated. Just turned 18, like multitudes of young men that age in all times and places, he was full of piss and vinegar. He wanted more excitement, adventure and danger than civilian life holds. I won't say that he particularly wanted to break things and kill people, but if matters had turned out that way, he would not have balked. Things didn't turn out that way. In all four years' service in a parachute regiment, he was never deployed to combat, to his great disappointment and our great relief. He mentioned a thing the Times touched on but didn't really cover. The fact that a lot of soldiers come from military families. There just aren't so many military families nowadays. The end of the draft in 1973 and the post-Vietnam disillusionment poisoned that well. The Times tells us that the military, in hopes of raising the recruitment numbers, has been lowering standards. They will let you enlist now if you have a neck tattoo, which was not formerly the case. The army even briefly dropped the requirement for a high school diploma, but they quickly changed their minds and reinstated it. They don't tell us, though, whether they've adjusted the lower limits on the AFQT, the Armed Forces Qualification Test. It has been known for decades that an AFQT score is a good proxy for IQ. Murray and Hernstein made extensive use of AFQT scores in their book The Bell Curve, and our own Steve Saylor has reported at length on the AFQT. That connection with IQ is probably why the Times skipped over the AFQT. IQ is, as all good-thinking people know, just a social construct with no foundation in reality. Really just another excuse to keep the black man down. So, all sorts of reasons for the enlistment fall-off. I still think my first gut reaction is relevant, though. Decades of futile missionary wars, the devaluing of masculinity, these have to have had some effect, along with those swelling numbers of young Americans who are too fat, stupid or antisocial to be good at soldiering. Or anything. I'll offer a suggestion to the Department of Defence. If things get really dire, we could bring back press gangs. The world, I warned you four podcasts ago, the world is about to start nuking up. Someone in New York City's Office of Emergency Management was listening. Last week, that office put out a rather peculiar public service announcement. 
So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why, just know that the big one has hit, okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one, get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this. Wow, there's a dash of nostalgia for us Cold War kids. Duck and cover! The PSA doesn't make total sense. That Notify NYC that she asked you to sign up for is a website, like, you know, on the internet. Trust me, if you're in a city that was just hit by a nuke, your internet access will be seriously, what's the word, non-existent. The advice to move away from windows is good, though. Heat and radiation aside, a nuclear explosion generates a terrific shockwave. When that shockwave meets your window, two things happen. One, the glass shatters into thousands of tiny splinters, and then two, those splinters all travel inwards at high velocity. You really don't want to be standing there. We Cold War babies know all this stuff, but there are two entire generations that don't. It's good of the city to put out a reminder. And yes, I do believe, and it looks as though some of our public officials also believe, that the world is about to nuke up. If indeed it happens, there will be no cause for surprise. Allow me to just enlarge a little on what I told you four podcasts ago. Small but reasonably prosperous nations, with big neighbours of an aggressive imperial inclination, don't have all that many options to preserve their independence. Historically, in fact, the number of options has been just two. Option one ally with neighbouring small nations for joint defence. Or, option two, ally with some big and powerful nation, perhaps a distant one, that seems not to have aggressive imperial inclinations. Or, at any rate, none that involve you. The first of those options has always been a bit dicey. Petty regional rivalries, trade disputes and such can make neighbourhood alliances unstable. Even among neighbour small nations, some are smaller than others and will nurse distrust towards their bigger allies. This is the stuff of history. Google, narcissism of small differences. For the second option, the big and powerful nation you ally with today has to be the USA. Who else is there? Unfortunately, that option has been holed below the waterline and is sinking fast because of the USA's doggedly stupid foreign policy this past few decades. What do you think option two looks like? 
to a Vietnamese or a Cambodian, an Iraqi or an Afghan. Henry Kissinger is supposed to have said, and he has never denied saying it, that, quote, it may be dangerous to be America's enemy, but to be America's friend is fatal. End quote. It's taken a while, but that remark is now known all over the world, and people believe it. My parents' generation, the generation that lived through World War II as adults, nursed a deep and respectful gratitude to the Yanks for saving us from totalitarianism. That gratitude was, I will admit, seasoned with some mild snobbery about cowboys, hillbillies and Puritans, but the snobbery was just an occasion for humour, not really malicious. The gratitude was real. Alas, that generation has now passed away. So, what is a small civilised nation that is no military match for the despotic ambitions of Russia, China and Iran? What is that nation supposed to do? Well, there is today a third option. Israel and North Korea have shown the way and the assault on Ukraine has reinforced the message. Nuke up! There is still a fearful asymmetry, of course. A big imperial nation with thousands of nukes could utterly annihilate a small neighbour with just a small closet full of them, while the small nation might only be able to nuke a handful of enemy cities, leaving the imperial power intact. OK, but even big imperial aggressive powers don't like having their cities nuked. So there is some real deterrence there. So what am I saying? That a nuked up Indonesia or a nuked up Venezuela might pop one on Manhattan? Well, I suppose they might. The real threat is more diffuse and general, though. In a world where nukes are commonplace, they will sooner or later drift into the wrong hands. Terrorists, crime syndicates, crazy loners. It'll happen. New York City is way ahead of the curve on this one, but it'll happen. In last week's podcast, I included a snippet of classical Chinese from the Analects of Confucius. One of my listeners, after we posted the transcript, emailed in to tell me that he had cut and pasted that snippet into Google Translate to see what happened. What happened, he told me, was gibberish. Well, yes. Google Translate is remarkably good with modern Chinese. If you want to browse Chinese newspapers, cutting and pasting into Google Translate is the way to do it. You'll get most of the sense, just sometimes not the fine nuances. The Analects, however, is written in classical Chinese which is a whole different dish of bean curd. Please note, before I proceed, please note that if you look at the list of languages in Google Translate, you see two entries for Chinese. Chinese simplified and Chinese traditional. The second entry there, Chinese traditional, is not classical Chinese. It's just the written characters in the shape that they had before the Chaikoms carried out some simplifying reforms in the 1950s to help spread literacy. You can read about those reforms in Chapter 5 
of Jing Tzu's recent book, Kingdom of Characters. Classical Chinese is different altogether. Dramatically different, and in fact, grammatically different. Even Chinese people have to make a special study of it. You get the impression, in fact, well, I do, that the old classic books, like the Analects, were not written to tell the reader things he didn't already know, so much as to remind him of things he had memorised back around age 12. The style is very brachylogical, short-winded. I have quoted elsewhere the complaint of one Western sinologist that, quote, Is it too much to ask that the writer indicate at least the subject of the sentence? In the case of classical Chinese, the answer is usually yes. End quote. OK, now I'll proceed. My listener is right, although I already knew it. Google Translate can't do classical Chinese. I just cut and pasted the famous opening words, words of Confucius, the opening words of the Analects, into Google Translate. The actual Chinese goes like this. Here is Simon Lay's nineteen ninety seven translation of that. Quote, to learn something and then to put it into practice at the right time. Is this not a joy? To have friends coming from afar? Is this not a delight? Not to be upset when one's merits are ignored? Is this not the mark of a gentleman? End quote. Here is what Google Translate gave me. Quote, Learn and learn from time to time. Don't say it. Have friends come from afar. People don't know, but don't feel sullen. Not a gentleman. End quote. Now, please don't think I'm scoffing at Google Translate. It's an excellent tool, and I use it a lot. It's intended for use with modern languages, though, not ancient ones. It makes no claims to cope with Hittite or Sumerian or Linear B. Never mind Linear A. So, yes, my listener is right, but that is no criticism of Google. The thing they can't do is a thing they make no claim of being able to do. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has given notice that he will resign when his party has picked a new leader. So, of course, the political talk over there is all about the leadership contest for Boris's party the so-called Conservative Party, which, as I told you last week, has utterly failed to conserve anything at all across 12 years of power. As I go to tape here, there are five people in the running, but there is to be another TV debate this evening, Friday evening, so the bookmakers' odds may all have changed by Saturday. According to those odds, the Commerce Secretary, 
and I'm using American titles for simplicity. The Commerce Secretary, a lady named Penny Mordaunt, is way out in front. Notwithstanding, she has a paper trail of opinions somewhere to the left of Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez. The bookies are giving her a 52% chance of winning. Then there's Liz Truss, Secretary of State, at 31%. Rishi Sunak, former Treasury Secretary, at 24%. Kemi Badenoch, until recently Minister for Equalities, which has no American equivalent, thank God, but which is presumably a power centre of wokeness. Uh, the bookies have her at 5%. And Tom Tugendhat, who has no government office, at 1%. So Britain might end up with a non-white prime minister. Rishi Sunak was born in Britain to Indian parents. Kemi Badenoch was born in Britain to Nigerian parents. She spent much of her childhood in Nigeria and some in the USA. The most interesting and penetrating things to be said about all that were said by Ed West at Substack on Thursday. My time is too short to give you even a precy here, but I urge you to read the piece. And if you want further relevant reading matter, Ed West reminds us of the phrase market dominant minorities, coined by Amy Chua in her book World on Fire which I reviewed for American Conservative back in 2003. You can read that review at my website. Go to Reviews, Human Sciences, and scroll down to 2003. The general topic also keys neatly to my several posts at vdare.com warning about the hazards of importing an overclass. Item. I have to back off just a wee bit from my telling you that Britain's Conservative government hasn't a Conservative bone in its body, or indeed a bone of any kind. On at least one issue, although a very small one, they have shown some Conservative spirit. The issue is Weights and measures. The Brits officially adopted the metric system back in the 1990s, but now there is a move, apparently with some support in the government, to go back to the old imperial measures. Feet and inches, pints and gallons, pounds and stones. I have my doubts they will actually proceed with this, but at least it's a flicker of light in the darkness. Back there in my notes about the James Webb Space Telescope, I gave you the speed of light in a vacuum as 67 million miles an hour. Devotees of imperial measures will know that the figure is more properly expressed as 1.8 billion furlongs a fortnight. And before nitpickers email in, that's a traditional English billion. 10 to the power 12. Item. Some of the people arrested by the Feds for participating in last year's January 6th protests at the US Capitol have now been in jail for a year and a half without trial. How is this possible? I honestly don't understand it. Isn't it a clear violation of both the Fifth and the Sixth Amendments? Due process of law? A speedy and public trial? What happened to those? 
not to mention the far older principle of habeas corpus. Can the federal government just do what it wants with us? Will someone please explain this to me? Item. A listener on the left coast pointed me to this story from the San Francisco Chronicle, July 1st. Headline. San Francisco Fires Non-Profit Hired to Clean Tenderloin Amid Allegations Its Workers Sold Drugs Harassed Residents. That headline tells the story. The city of San Francisco hired an outfit named Mission Neighborhood Centers to clean up the downtown Tenderloin district and manage public restrooms. This was part of a $9 million initiative that Mayor London Breed announced a year ago to make the Tenderloin cleaner and safer. The idea was to help the street people straighten out their lives by giving them paid employment, doing the clean-up and managing the restrooms. What actually happened, of course, was that the street people slept on the job, harassed normal people passing through or using public restrooms, sat around idle, or, quotes from the Chronicle, quote, walking over mounds of rubbish without picking it up, and, quote, selling marijuana out of a large paper bag and smoking it with another person. End quotes. The city has now cancelled the contract. The non-profit has filed a lawsuit to have the cancellation rescinded. Yo, Madam Mayor, I could have told you if you'd asked me. It's not the sty that makes the pig. It's the pig that makes the sty. Item. I mentioned Henry Kissinger in some context back there. Yes, I know, everyone has a case against Kissinger. I will just note that in my only two personal encounters with him, I found him both cordial and well-informed. For sure, he's a tough old bird. He had his 99th birthday a few weeks ago and just published another book. That's his second book in two years. Well, all right, that previous one was in collaboration with two other guys, but still. The guy has a grasp of genetics, too. Asked by the New York Post how he accounted for his longevity, Kissinger replied, I chose my parents very well. Yes, he did. His father, his brother and his mother passed away at, respectively, 95, 96 and 97. Keep going, Henry. Just don't buy any green bananas. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time and attention, and stay cool in this current heat wave. If you can afford to, with energy pricing at current levels. For sign-out music, I'm going to give you Lily Bolero again. I gave you some Lily Bolero last October, but that was a formal military band, so the rendering was solemn and genteel. Here is something a bit more Irish. By Irish there I mean Ulster Protestant. July 12th, which fell on Tuesday this week, is their great day, and Lily Bolero is one of their favourite tunes. Here it is from a recording I've had for many years now, but whose packaging material strangely omits to tell me who the performers are. All it says is Ulster Records 15 to 21 Gordon Street, Belfast.
Possibly this is just a bit of Northern Irish caution left over from the Troubles. Although, if it is, they really shouldn't have given their street address. We know where ye live. And for any fanatical Irish Republicans who want to tell me they know where I live, let me hasten to add that this Sunday I shall be attending service at a Roman Catholic church for the christening of our grandson, Michael Joseph. I don't know much about the R.C. liturgy, but I did see the Godfather movies, so I know enough to answer when the priest asks me if I renounce Satan and all his works, that, yes, I do renounce them. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Protestant boys are loyal and true, stout-hearted in battle and stout-handed too. The Protestant boys are true as of yore, and faithful and peaceful when danger is o'er. And though they bear and proudly were the colours that floated o'er many a fray, where cannons were flashing and sabres were clashing, the Protestant boys still carry the day. Treason was rampant and traitors were strong The law was defiled by a vile rabble throng When thousands were banded, the throne to cast out The Protestants rallied and stood by the crown And often fight by day and night They counted the rebels and managed to fray When red hags were bristling and bullets were whistling The Protestant boys still carried the day When James half a bigot and more of a knave With masses and Frenchmen the land would enslave